Well, as always, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. We are trucking through the Gospel of Matthew as we have for, oh, I don't know, two years now. And um, it's been really, really good. I love, I have come to just a deep appreciation of the Gospel of Matthew and how he, you know, the, the, the perspective from which he tells us the story of Jesus and um, there's just a lot of profundity and wisdom and beauty in it. And so, we last week we talked about Jesus's um, being tested in the garden, and this morning we're going to see Jesus and Peter on trial. Jesus and Peter on trial. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. Father, again, what a privilege to be here, and Lord Jesus, we gather here this morning, and we're thinking specifically about the trial that you endured, Lord, uh, some 2,000 years ago, and just how you um, were utterly committed, God, Lord Jesus, to the purpose for which you came, and We also see Peter and his hour of testing and how he failed the test. Lord, but you continue to uphold him. So, Lord, we want want to learn from you this morning. Yes, Lord, it's 2,000 years later, but the Spirit still speaks to the churches. And we want to hear from you this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 26. And that's where we are, Matthew chapter 26. And, you know, this is Jesus and Peter on trial. And that's kind of, um, that word can go either way. And the, the ambiguity is intentional there. You know, there's a legal trial, legal proceedings we call a trial. But also a season of testing or difficulty can be called a trial. And as I always say, it's, a t- it's in times of trial and testing that you really find out what's in a person, right? So I always say that people are like sponges, right? You can see a sponge, and perhaps you've done this as I have, and you put some water in it, you're trying to clean something, and then when you, you so you wet it a little bit and you start, sque- you start washing something, but then when you squeeze it, you realize, oh, there was some nasty junk on the inside of that sponge that you didn't realize was there. You see, when... You don't know what's inside of a sponge till you squeeze it. You don't know what's inside of a person till they're squeezed. And people always say, well, you know, that's not really who I am. But the Bible says it couldn't come out if it wasn't in. It's what comes out of a man, Jesus said, that defiles a person. And so we see who we really are, not what the trial has made us, but we see who we really have been all along and it just hasn't come out till we were squeezed. And in this passage today, we see not just Jesus, but I believe Peter on trial. They're both tested. And we see what is in each of them. And we ourselves, in this passage, we are confronted with the question. We're put on trial. That in the hour of our testing, will we we be more like Jesus or more like Peter? 
And I think that's the question Matthew wants to put to us this morning. As we see Jesus and Peter on trial. For Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 57. And if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57. This is what it says. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when the servant went out to the entrance, and and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The word of God, you may be seated. We're going to look at this passage under two themes. Number one, the good confession. And number two, the bitter denial. The good confession and the bitter denial. So first, we have the good confession. So we draw near here to the greatest and most significant event, event that ever has happened in human history, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God for the forgiveness of sins and eventually the restoration of the world. And we see Jesus, the greatest man who ever lived, the Son of God, in a mock trial after having been seized by a mob in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so the scribes and elders have gathered in Caiaphas' house, okay, who is the high priest, 
And um, this is commonly referred to as the Sanhedrin, which was comprised of 70 religious leaders and functioned as the highest ruling authority within Israel. And so we have discussed for quite a while now about how Matthew portrays the growing tension between Jesus and the religious authorities. And it essentially reaches a climax right here in this trial. They have finally, the religious leaders, the religious establishment has finally found themselves in a situation in which they think they're in control. But it turns out they're not in control at all. Now Luke tells us that Peter was following Jesus at a distance. So remember, after his arrest in Gethsemane, Jesus told them that to strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. And so all of them fled. But apparently, uh, at least two of the inner ring, John and Peter, decided to follow the mob and to see what was going to take place. And we know from the Gospel of John that John, apparently the Apostle John, was known to the high priest's household and maybe knew some people who, maybe some of the servants there, something like that, and was able to get access into the, the, the household of the high priest. So remember, you know, wealthy people at this time, they would have a, you know, not just a house, but a household. They might have a fence and a, and a homestead with a courtyard, okay? And you might have servants going in and out. So it's not strange for, like it would be for us, for just a stranger to walk into your yard, okay? But this is just how those households work. And so John gets Peter access to the courtyard from where he would be able to see how the trial of Jesus would be able to play out. And it says there, uh, it, it says there um, that he, he, he goes to see what the end would be. And uh, in Greek and in English, it, that, that, that language there is pretty ominous. G, Peter is going to see the end. And it's pointing to kind of the bitterness of how this trial would play out, both for Jesus and for Peter, but in different ways. It says, in this trial, the council was seeking false testimony against Jesus. Um, I don't think that means that they were specifically looking for liars, because even better than false testimony would have been true testimony that would have condemned Jesus. But what Matthew is telling us is that any evidence that they would have gathered against Jesus would have necessity had to been false, because Jesus did nothing according to any legal standard, Jewish legal standard, that would have been worthy of death. So any testimony that they have, would have found would have, been, uh, would have been of necessity false. Now they were seeking two witnesses, which Matthew points out, which is fascinating. Why? Because by Jewish law, any such crime had to be affirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay? Now I think that's important, and it's important to remember that like our, our modern-day legal system like it or not, was birthed out of a Christian worldview, which has the Bible at its root, okay? And the fact that an accusation has to be, uh, be made on the basis of two witnesses is kind of the underpinnings of the uh, modern legal notion of due process, right? You couldn't just go around making wild accusations about anyone, but they had to be reasonable. And that's why, and that's why uh, if you commit a crime, you have to be convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, which I think is a wonderful thing, <laughs> I think it's a really wonderful thing that we should preserve at all costs. So they're seeking two witnesses. And now what's interesting is that the, the council is, is, you know, they're seeking two witnesses in order to keep the law. But now think about the irony 
of this situation. And I think Matthew wants you to see that. You have these men who are so committed to keeping the letter of the law that they want to make sure they have two witnesses, right? So that they can dot all their I's and cross all their T's in their condemnation of Jesus, while at the same time, in so doing, they are actually murdering the one who God himself sent as the fulfillment of the law. What does that tell us? It tells us this, that religion is no guarantee of righteousness. And that the true human need is not new rules, but new hearts. You see, God came and he gave the Israelites in the Old Testament, he gave them lots of rules. But the point was not for them to keep the rules. The point was for them to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And here's how you do it. And so the the essence has always been the heart. And so these, these religious leaders, they were committed, they were committed to the, the letter of the law. And, and, and so they, they, they were trying to keep to the letter of the law while at the same time committing the greatest evil that has ever been done in the history of the world. The murder of God's son. Which is why the greatest evil that is always committed in the world is what, what I call principled evil. The people who do the greatest evil in the world who are the people who have convinced themselves that they're actually doing the right thing. It's always the case. Go read a history book. I wish more people would. The Nazis, right? They could, they, the, the whole generation of Germans were convinced that Jews were evil and that the right thing to do was to exterminate them. They were also convinced, by the way, that elderly people and sick people who could not contribute to the cause were just using up resources, and so they slowly exterminated them too. And how, and you look back and you think, how could people do such evil like that? But you forget that at the time they believed that they were doing the right moral thing to do for the greater good of society. And, by, and so by calling good evil and evil good, grievous evil can be committed, and not just committed, but justified on moral grounds, which is amazing. Now, they finally found two accusers who agreed, apparently, and the accusation was that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now, that's fascinating because in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus nowhere says that. The closest thing that we have is in the Gospel of John, which is interesting because, you know, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are all very similar. And John just kind of stands over here with a very unique perspective on the story of Jesus. But the closest thing that we have to this statement here is in the Gospel of John, not in any of the other synoptics. And it's in John 2.19 where it says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, immediately after that, that, that saying in the Gospel of John, John clarifies by saying that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Now we know in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus did speak about the destruction of Jerusalem because we talked about that when we talked about Matthew 24 and the end times and all that, that stuff. Okay? And so Jesus did predict the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's not, if you 
read the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of John, where half the time somebody asks Jesus a question, and then Jesus answers, and you're like, what does that have to do with anything that that person just asked? Jesus often spoke in very cryptic language. And so it's easy to see how a hostile or unsympathetic listener could misconstrue what Jesus was trying to say to come up with this uh, accusation. And the destruction of the temple, remember, was no small matter, right? This is, the temple is, the, is, is, is the, the, the center of Jewish identity. It, it, it constitutes who they are, and it represents in their minds the presence of God in their midst. Right, which is why in the in the in the book of Ezekiel, right when when Ezekiel was prophesying that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, Ezekiel has this vision of this of this you know this throne with wheels, which is kind of wheels within wheels and eyes all around and kind of wonky crazy thing. You've ever read the book of Ezekiel? But it literally is a the throne of God on wheels. And what does Ezekiel see? God getting on his throne and rolling out. Of where? Of the temple. God is. The, Ezekiel saw the judgment of God in Jerusalem in a vision of God, God's presence, God's glory, leaving the temple. And that was the ultimate sign of judgment upon Israel, upon which, uh, after which Babylon came and destroyed the temple. Well, the, the, so the temple obviously represents the presence of God in the midst of the people. And Jesus, over and over again, we've seen, right? Jesus has spoke to this generation. Remember what Jesus has already said? He said, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for you. Because if they would have seen what you saw, they would have been casting themselves on the ground, begging for mercy from God. And you saw it and you were not willing. And so, he has, he, has said, he has told them that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed because God is doing something new. It's in, in, a new covenant. Jesus is coming and bringing in the new covenant. And so the old, the old way of sacrificial system, which pointed to Jesus, is now going to be obsolete because Jesus came and fulfilled all these things. And so the point is, is that the accusation of destroying the temple was no small matter. But in the face of these accusations, Jesus was silent. He was silent. Now, when you read that, and I do think it's intentional on the part of Matthew. When you read that, I think it's impossible to see an allusion to Isaiah 53, 7. Now, Isaiah 53 is one of the most famous Old Testament passages. You know, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But in verse 7, it says this. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I mean, I think it's impossible not to see an allusion to that. This is Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote these words. He was silent. He made no defense. Jesus was prepared to offer up his life for the sins of the world. And see, that's the point, right? The, 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 we, we know from the Gospel of John, right, that the religious leaders thought that in murdering Jesus, they were doing the Jews a favor. You remember that? Because they thought that Jesus would be gathering a following, right, that would kind of rise up and that would create a stir among the Romans and that the Romans would come 
because of Jesus and, and destroy their city and take away their land. Which ended up happening, you know, about 40 years after Jesus, but it wasn't due to Jesus. It was due to the hard-hearted evil Jews. And then Jerusalem was destroyed like Jesus said it would happen. But that that wasn't Jesus' plan. Right? They thought they were doing the Jews a favor, and they thought they were getting their own wicked way by their plotting, and they finally got Jesus where they wanted him, so we're going to kill him and all that jazz. And Jesus is thinking, I'm fulfilling what has been planned for me from before the foundation of the world. The plan of God to forgive sinners so that they can come back to me. And so Jesus has nothing to say. And probably one of the worst things I could possibly imagine being part of is being part of a huge false accusation scandal. And the urge to just defend yourself and to say, no, these are lies. It's not true. It's not true. And Jesus says nothing. Because he's got a plan to fulfill. The high priest then directly addresses Jesus by adjuring him by God to tell them whether or not he is the Christ. Now there's there's some evidence that some Jews believe that the Messiah would rebuild or renew the temple. And so and so the the claim of Jesus's claim about the temple would have some messianic implications. And so it's not totally disconnected that there he is being accused about the temple and then they ask him if he's the Christ. Those, those two things are not totally disconnected, all right? And so they're basically saying, you know, if you're the one who's going to do all these, these, in, you know, these crazy things, are you the Christ or not? Tell us. I adjure you by God to tell us. The high priest demands an answer by invoking God himself. And at this point, Jesus cannot remain silent. But how does he answer them? And he answers them in kind of a strange way. He says, you have said so which most commentators agree that that means, yes, I am the Messiah, but he says it in, but it's kind of a, Jesus doesn't, there's no good way for Jesus to tell them who he is. Because, why? Because they have no concept of the Messiah he came to be. Their, their understanding of who the Messiah was was so misconstrued from the Old Testament that if he told them the Messiah, they would actually, they would a, they would actually be more confused. Not, it, would not, it wouldn't be more clear. It would be less clear to them because they, would have all, they had all these false expectations of who the Messiah was. So if, even if he told them straight up that he was, which he essentially does, they still misconstrue who he is, which is why Jesus, again, he answers so brilliantly because he says, you have said so, but I tell you. In other words, you've said I'm the Messiah, and I am, essentially. But, and then he gives allusions to two Old Testament passages. And these allusions to these two Old Testament passages tell them who he is in a way that would be very difficult to explain in any other way. In the two allusions, he says, you've said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I think these are allusions to two Old Testament passages. The first one 
is Psalm 110 verse 1, which says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So clearly, it's one of the most quoted psalms in the whole New Testament. It's clearly messianic that all the, the Jews understood that it was referring to the Messiah and that there was this, the Lord says to my Lord. So this great, so this is the, this is the passage that Jesus confounds their leaders with, you know, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Question, you remember that? And so this passage is, is quoted, but it speaks of the Messiah who's going to sit at the right hand of God until God makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet. And so Jesus says, you've said so, you've said that I'm Messiah, but I tell you that from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Now think about what that means. What is Jesus telling them? He's telling them, I am the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah that you think I am because I'm not about to set up my, my, my manifest kingdom reign right now. And he does so, and, he, and how does he tell them that? By quoting the Old Testament, which he repeatedly condemned them for not understanding. And he's saying, here's what has to happen. I'm the Messiah, and here's what has to happen. I'm not going to set up my kingdom now in the way that you think I am. I'm going to go up to my father and I'm going to sit at the right hand of my father and he's going to make my enemies a footstool for my feet. And I'm going to sit up there and I'm going to reign from heaven until the time of my kingdom comes. And so what's he? And so he and so they 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 didn't understand. They missed the whole Isaiah three part, Isaiah 53 part. They didn't understand that the Messiah has to come first like a lamb. Before he returns like a lion. And the other reference that Jesus makes is from Daniel chapter 7. Which says this. He says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one is one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus said, but from now on, you'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus telling them? He's saying, yes, I am the Messiah, but I'm going to heaven to sit at the right hand. In, in, the, in this uh, Daniel passage, Jesus is telling them what? He's telling them, I am the son of man. Jesus' favorite self-reference, which is always, he, Jesus talked in the third person, which is kind of weird sometimes. But he, he always said, the son of man, the son of man, the son of man came for this. The son of man came for that. The son of man is who? It's the Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions and one like a son of man came and was presented before the ancient of days. Jesus is saying, I am, I am the one Daniel saw. Daniel saw me. What a claim. Daniel saw me. But what did Daniel see about me? This is what he saw. He saw one coming on the clouds of heaven. Now we often think about that as like coming down and, and Jesus said, I'll come in the same way that I left. But if you read it, he says, he, in the clouds of heaven and was presented before him. What Daniel saw was not the Son of Man coming down. What Daniel saw was the Son of Man going up on the clouds of heaven to be presented before the Ancient of Days. And at that point, at Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascended into heaven, Jesus at that point was presented to God. And at that point, God was handing to him because of what he accomplished through his death and resurrection. God was handing to him all peoples and all nations, the whole world that they should serve him. 
An everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. A kingdom that shall not be destroyed. Remember Daniel saw that. Daniel saw that. Daniel saw a statue of gold and of silver and of uh, iron and clay. And then uh, that represented all the nations on the world. And then Daniel saw a stone that was cut from a rock but not with human hands. And it struck the foot of the nations and all the nations and all the great kingdoms of the earth turned to dust and the stone became a mountain which filled the whole world. And Jesus said, Daniel saw me. Daniel saw me. That's my kingdom. That's who I am. Yes, I'm the Christ. Yes, I'm the Messiah. But you do not understand who I am. They didn't understand, but they they understood enough. They understood enough to say he's blaspheming. They understood enough of the claim that he was making to condemn him to death. But what do we see here? We see Jesus making the good confession. He knew when he the, when those words left his lips, you will see me seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He knew that the second those words left his lips, it was it was over. His fate was sealed. But the thing is, is it had been all along. He had already wrestled with that in the garden. He knew that there was no other way, that there was no one else who could drink the cup but him. And so what did he do? He made the good confession. I am the son of man. He he wasn't going to lie to him, right? He just wasn't going to lie to him. I will be seated at the right hand of power. I will be coming on the clouds of heaven. That's the kingdom of God. Jesus reigning from heaven, building his kingdom. The testimony of the kingdom, Jesus said, must, must, the the proclamation of the gospel, it it must go out as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Jesus is building his kingdom from heaven. And one day he's coming back. That's the kingdom of God. And so the question for us is what are we going to do? What are we going to do in the hour of our trial? We talked about it last time and we should talk about it again today. Like Peter, you know, it's, it's one thing to take up our swords and and to 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 you know storm the gates for Jesus. It's one thing to die for Jesus, but it's something a little different to die like Jesus. Jesus didn't die with a sword in his hand. He died a criminal. He died being slandered. He died being falsely accused. He died being falsely condemned. And the question is, are we willing not just to die for Jesus, are we willing to die like Jesus? And I think that's going to be the question 
that we're going to be facing and that your children and grandchildren are going to be facing in this lifetime in this country is are we willing will we go with the crowd out of fear of man and affirm things that we know are false like a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man are we going to be are we going to affirm things that we know are false so that we don't lose our jobs or whatever it may be? Or are we going to hold to the truth and refers, refuse to affirm lies even if it costs us? You know, it's the same thing that Jesus told the, the Sanhedrin that got him killed is the same thing Jesus told, is the same thing that Stephen told them that got him killed. Acts chapter 7. Stephen recounted to them the history of Israel told them how hard-hearted they was and then what did Stephen say that got him killed he looked into heaven and he saw what the son of man standing at the right hand and the second he said that they picked up rocks and killed him but here's the brute fact of reality Jesus is in fact right now as I speak sitting at the right hand of power. Jesus is, as I speak right now, reigning from heaven. And he will build his kingdom. And it will not be apart from, but it will be through the suffering of the saints. That's what we're called to, to remain faithful and true, and we'll receive our reward. So number one, the good confession. But number two, the bitter denial. The bitter denial. So we see Jesus, and Matthew tells us all that Jesus went through, and then he comes back and he tells us what Peter was going through. He was in the courtyard to see the end, and then he has these three accusations made at him. And so we see that Jesus, when he's on trial, he makes the good confession, despite what he knows it was going to cost him to fulfill God's eternal plan for him. And we see that even while Jesus was on trial, Peter was facing a trial of his own, right? Jesus had his accusers, right? This man said that he would destroy the temple and raise it in three days. And now Peter has his accusers. You also were with Jesus the Galilean. Now remember, they're in Jerusalem. I don't think Galilean was a compliment. It's kind of like, you were with so-and-so, that Yankee. Or to, or to flip it, you'd say, you were with so-and-so, that redneck. It wasn't a compliment. It was probably the term of derision. You were with that guy from nowhere up there who thought he was something special. You were with him. Now, how does Peter... Respond to the accusation. Now remember, in the, 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 the Last Supper, right, and in the garden, we, we have just read that, that Peter has told Jesus, Jesus, I'll, if, even if all fall away, I'll die for you. That's what Peter said. Literally just said it hours before. So we have the Peter who said, Jesus, if all fall away, I won't. I'll die for you. 
And then we have, and the, we have the same Peter who this mob's coming to take Jesus. And, and Peter says, nah, and whips out that sword and cuts off uh, the high priest servant's ear. So again, he's in the high priest's household. He just cut off one of their ears, by the way. But they, they probably didn't recognize him. It was dark. But he had just cut off one of their ears. So we have Peter who said, I will die with you. We have Peter who was ready to wield the sword for Jesus. All right. And now Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest saying, hey, you were with him. Here's your chance, Peter. What you going to do? Me? With Jesus? I don't know what you're talking about. That that's 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 how my that's how my uh, four year old gets out of something. I don't I don't know what you're talking about. I, I, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't even know what you're saying. I don't know what you mean. I, I can't even understand your words right now. I just I lost my capacity for language. I don't know what you mean. I was with him. I don't know what you mean. That's it. That's how Peter responds. I don't know what you mean. And here's the, here's the thing. Peter gets three chances to own Jesus. He gets three chances to own Jesus. The test repeats itself. He could have said, you know what? Yes, I'm with him. I was with him. In fact, I'm one of his closest friends. He could have said that. But after the first accusation, he backs out of the courtyard, back towards the gate, and is faced with another accusation. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And, then, and so each time he like doubles down. This time he denies it with an oath. So this time he swears. I don't know the man. He swears, I don't know the man. He swears he, he doesn't even know Jesus. And then a little later, some other bystanders, not persuaded by his oath, say, wait a second. Wait a second. We know you were Jesus because you, you got that same redneck accent, that same Galilean northern accent. We know you're with him. And then it says this time, he, he, Peter doubles down again in the opposite direction. And begins to invoke a curse on himself and swore again that he didn't know Jesus. Aren't you glad that with God it's not three strikes you're out? Strike three, Peter. Strike three. And at that moment, the rooster crows. And he realized what just happened. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, what does that teach us? Well, it teaches us a lot, and here's why. Because we're presented with these two pictures. We, we see Jesus and we see Peter. And the truth is, deep down, we all know we're a lot more like Peter than we are like Jesus. You know, 
we are given opportunities to make the good, def- the good confession. And our denial sometimes might not be with words, it might be with silence. When we have that chance to say, yes, I'm with him. And we don't speak up. You know, in the book of Matthew, Peter is not mentioned by name again. But we're not left without hope. Because we know from the other Gospels that the women are the first one to discover the empty tomb. And they go and proclaim the resurrection. And the same two that were there that night, Peter and John, run to the tomb to check it out. We know that even in the Gospel of Matthew at the Great Commission, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, that Peter is among those who are given that charge. And we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus comes and both confronts and restores Peter by asking him three times, do you love me? Just as Peter had denied him three times. And each time Peter affirms his love for Jesus, Jesus essentially says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. You see, it wasn't three strikes you're out for Peter. Peter still had a job to do, and Jesus wanted him to do it. So no matter how many times you've denied Jesus with your life, if you'll repent and you'll come back, Jesus still got work for you to do. He's not going to give up on you. He'll take you back. But you got to get to work. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. You see, we talked about it earlier, but Jesus knew that was going to happen. He knew that he was going to have to go that night alone. Jesus told Peter, Satan demanded, you, demanded to have you to sift you like wheat. How would you like to be told that? But then he said, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus is praying for us. He is interceding for us. He is our advocate with the Father. And so denying Jesus as grievous as it is is not the unforgivable sin if we repent. And so the lesson we must learn from Peter is that we should be zealous for Jesus. We should be bold for Jesus. We should be courageous for Jesus. But we've got to get our expectations right. Following Jesus won't, in fact, most of the time, isn't going to lead to greatness here and now. It's going to lead to a lot of pain, a lot of heartache, a lot of sorrow, a lot of suffering, and in the age to come, eternal life. The glory days are coming, but they're not here yet. And if we want it, then we have to be willing to suffer now. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. 
Loyalty to Jesus, nine times out of ten, isn't going to look like reigning like a king. It's going to look like suffering as a slave. Wielding a sword and rushing the enemies of Jesus is going to look less like Braveheart and more like Passion Week. And in the day when we scream and yell at each other on social media demanding our rights, Jesus said nothing to do what God wanted him to do. Because for Jesus, it didn't matter if the whole world thought he was guilty. If God knew he was innocent. And Jesus Christ was in fact the pure spotless lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. So take courage, make the good confession, even if you have to suffer for it. Follow the path of Jesus. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you knew what you had to do and that you came and you did it for God, for the Father, and for us. And because of what you've done, Lord, we stand forgiven and free, children of God, filled with the Spirit, able to follow you. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, we openly admit this morning that we are much more like Peter in this story. I pray, God, that you would help us, that you would help us, Lord Jesus, to make the good confession each and every day with those opportunities that you give us to say, hey, I'm with him. I'm with him. To testify and to witness to who you are, to what you've done, and what you're going to do. And Lord Jesus, I pray this morning, I don't know, Lord, you know. Maybe somebody listening to my words this morning. They don't truly know you. They haven't yet truly followed in your steps. But maybe by your spirit, they're seeing, they're beginning to see for the first time that you're not just some story, you're not just some myth, you're not just some ancient history, but you are the Son of God right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That you really did live on this earth, that you really did die at the hands of wicked men, that you really did rise from the dead and show yourself to your disciples, that you really did ascend into heaven and have been handed the kingdom, and that you really are coming back one day for us to judge the world and to reward those who have been faithfully waiting for you. Maybe for the first time you're showing somebody that in the depths of their heart. I pray that they would trust you this morning and be saved. You are worthy of all of our adoration and praise. And we give it to you today in Jesus' name.